I'm going to have to confess to you right up front that uh, I need to hear a message on this topic far more than I need to give one, which is why I chose it, so it would force me to study it. Um, so um, I'm going I'm to do something a little different this time. I'm going I'm to preach this message to myself, and you're welcome to listen in if you like. <laughs> in fact, Janet accuses me of pacing around the house and talking to myself anyway, <laughs> so um, I have to verbalize things. You know, when I was a young guy, Second um, Chronicles 16.9 was uh, one of the most motivating verses I had learned. You may be familiar with it. The eyes of the Lord. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And that's a great verse for young guys and young leaders. And I remember some of the guys I worked with years ago, one guy in particular who was a very strong young leader. This was his life verse. But you know, as I've gotten older, I've realized this verse is really a warning of judgment for more experienced leaders, especially if you look at the context of who said it and to whom. Um, you know, when, when they're instructed properly, young leaders, young spiritual leaders in particular, they will rely on God because it's all they know. But the bane of more experienced leaders, that is the source of their ruin, is when they stray from their reliance on God alone and choose instead to rely on something or someone else. And it can take many forms, but it often follows a period of great success in the life of that leader. So let's talk what I'd like to call the Asa factor. Uh, turn over, if you would, to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 14. We're going to look at a few kings and their lives, and, and a little bit about their experiences. And, and, and they all seem to have a tendency when they're young to rely on God in very difficult situations and see Him move and work. But as they get more experienced, as they get a little bit older, they tend to sort of take matters into their own hands or they're led away by something or someone else, and, and they stray from relying on God. And why is that? It's such an odd occurrence to me in Scripture that it really bears some, some study. Now, Asa... Asa is a, a, a good king overall. He is the great-grandson of King Solomon. He reigns from 917 to uh, 873 B.C. He's probably the most righteous king since the split of the kingdom, since Israel and Judah split, and he reigned for 41 years. Now, as a young king, he relied on God in a very difficult and hopeless situation and expected the impossible. He saw God do great things. Uh, so let's take a look at his life early on. In chapter 14... Um, referring to his father, Abijah slept uh, with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days the land had rest for ten years, and Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the ashram and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took... Out of all the cities of Judah, the high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah and for the land. And he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. Ten years of peace, great prosperity in the country. Goes on to say he builds up an army to defend the country. This is a good time in the history of Judah. And things are going well. And then let's pick it up at verse 9. 
Uh, and then after a season, uh, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men, 300 chariots, and came as far as Marishaw. And Asa went out to meet him and drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephatha, of Zephatha at Marishaw. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. We rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude. O God, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah. Um, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. Now, this is a great story. Here you, you see that uh, af- after 10 years of peace and prosperity, after a time when, when he even raises his own army, still an army twice his size, a million-man army, comes against him. He's got just over 500,000 men in his army. And so it's a, as a young guy, as a fairly young leader, this is quite a test. And yet he relies on the Lord and he sees God deliver a great victory. And the Lord defeats the Ethiopians. Now, this term rely is quite an interesting term. Of course, it means to lean on or depend on or to trust. might be a synonym for, to, for trust. The Hebrew term, if I don't butcher it, Grant was in here in the first service and gave me a slight nod, so I must have got it close, is uh, she'an. It means to lean, rely, to support oneself, to rest one's weight against something else to give it support. That's the same word used uh, in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Pretty familiar passage to most of you. Great verse. Probably the first verses I ever, I ever memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths or make your paths straight. So, in other words, rely on God in everything. Don't rely on yourself and your own understanding. And, and in your journey through life, if you'll acknowledge and seek Him and rely on Him, He will make the path straight. He'll smooth it out. He'll direct your life. Great verse, isn't it? Who was that written by? Asa's great-grandfather, King Solomon, right? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So he had that verse as, while he was serving as king. Now, you know, it's... Um, <clears throat> It's my understanding that men in general will rely on one of three things. Men and women will rely on one of three things. Either God and His Word, because to rely on God is to rely on His Word, right? Because the Word, Logos, is the divine expression. It is God expressing Himself in thought uh, and in His Word and saying to, to, to us. Or man and his culture, philosophy, or science. That's the second thing men have a tendency to rely on. Or simply himself and his pride, or maybe proof if he, as he demands it. Prove it to me, then I'll believe it or I'll follow it. So men uh, have a tendency, when I say men, men and women, people in general have a tendency to rely on one of three things. Either God and his word, man and his culture, philosophy, or science, or simply himself and his pride and maybe, maybe proof. So when we talk about culture, though, uh, let me define that as the integrated pattern of human behavior, customary beliefs, social norms, and that includes, of course, thoughts, speech, and action. When we talk about philosophy or man's philosophy, of course, that's the two terms there. Philo means what? Love, right? Sophism, wisdom, the love of wisdom, the love of man's wisdom, 
philosophy. And science, when we talk about science, from the Latin scientia, meaning knowledge. Uh, typically, though, uh, when we refer to it as knowledge derived from empirical research conducted by man, right? Well, let's pick up the story. We're going to come back to this in a second. Pick up the story now. Things go well. We go through chapter 15. I'm going to pick up in, uh, some years later now in chapter 16 in King Asa's life. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Now let me summarize what's going on after this in verses 2 through 6. What you have since the split of the kingdom is God is with Judah. He is not with Israel. Israel has a series of bad kings, of pagan kings. Right? God is still with Judah. They are still trusting God at times. They're struggling. But... And, and so Basha and Asa are going to fight each other from time to time. And what ha- what's happening is Basha is building essentially the Berlin Wall down on the border of Israel and Judah, where they both, right? So Israel's to the north, Judah's to the south. He's building fortifications there for two reasons. One, during the time of Judah's prosperity, uh, there are others in the ten northern tribes who are defecting and going down to Judah, and Basha wants to stop this. And the second thing that's happening is he's wanting to set up fortifications so he can attack Judah more efficiently. Now, Asa sees this and is disturbed, as he might be. Now, is this bad as the million-man army that happened some years earlier? No, probably not. But it's, it's significant. It's serious. So what does Asa do? <clears throat> well, Asa shows a, quite a bit of political skill in what he does here. He goes to King Hadad, the king of Syria, pagan Syria, and says, Look, I'd like you to break your treaty with Israel and form an alliance with me instead... And then I'd like you to attack from the north, Israel. Pays him a bunch of silver and gold, and, it do, and he does it. And you know, this maneuver works like a charm, because when that happens, uh, King Basha has to stop from what he's doing, building up these fortifications down on the Judah border, Judean border, and go to the north to fight off the Syrians in his northern border. I mean, this works like a charm. He couldn't have done this any better. So meanwhile, Asa then goes, goes up to southern Israel, northern Judah, takes all these materials from which Basha is using to build his fort, moves it to the south, builds his own fortifications, and this just, I mean, he just couldn't have done this any better. With one small little problem here. He failed to rely on the Lord in this whole thing. He relied instead on his political skill and his maneuverings, which worked perfectly. Well, and God was a little bit unhappy with how this turned out. And so he sends a prophet, Hanani. I'm looking now at chapter 16, verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria, which is an enemy to Judah historically, has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hands. And now the famous verse. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him or who are fully committed to him or blameless before him, depending on your version. And this you have done foolishly, and from now on you're going to have war. No more peace in, in Judah because of, because of the actions of King Asa here. 
And so you've got to ask yourself, why would you do this? What happened to you, King Asa? You know, you, you had such an incredible experience as a young king against great odds and saw an incredible victory. And now, this is bad, but it's not near as bad. And yet, you don't rely on God, and now look what's going to happen. And, to top it off, um, <clears throat> King Asa does not respond well, does he? You know, when David's confronted with his own sin, he repents wholeheartedly. What does Asa do? He got angry. It says there, in, <clears throat> in down in verse uh, 10, Then he was angry with the seer, put him in stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this. And Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at that time. Like, wow, what kind of response is that? What has happened to you, King Asa? In fact, if we go a couple more verses, it says in the 39th year of his reign, he gets a disease in his feet, uh, and it becomes very severe. And then it says, yet even in his disease he didn't seek the Lord, but sought help from the physicians. And then he ultimately dies. What happened to you? You know, I, this is such a puzzling thing to me, but this is not an anomaly in Scripture or a one-time event. It's a recurring theme. You see this happen to a lot of seasoned spiritual leaders, um, including Solomon himself, right? And this still happens today to spiritual leaders, doesn't it? Let's briefly look, though. I want to look briefly um, at three kings in particular, kind of a royal trilogy of father-son, father-son, and kind of expand on this theme a little bit. Um, looking at Joash, Amaziah, and Uzziah. I want to talk through this fairly briefly. <laughs> I went a little too long last service. And then I'd like to end, though, on a positive note. Let's talk about, we're going to talk about, ultimately, some guys that got it right. Timothy and Paul got it right. These three kings, Joash, Amaziah, and Uzziah, didn't get it right. They started well, but they finished poorly. All right, so let's talk about Joash. He, he, a few generations later, he rules, in, and now I'm in the Second Chronicles 23 through through uh, 26. Actually, we're going to pick up at chapter 24. You with me? Everything okay? Joash rules from 837 to 800. Um, let me just summarize his story. Things get so bad in Judah that, that Athalia, who, who has no right to the throne, she's the queen mother. She, she assumes the throne when her sons died, and then she sets about to assassinate all the heirs to the throne. How'd you like to have her as a grandmother? <laughs> and... Um, but the wife of the chief priest, Jehoiada, hides uh, Joash when he's a, he's a child to keep him from being murdered. Um, and then the chief priest, Jehoiada, mentors and disciples him for many years after that and ultimately puts him back on the throne. They depose Athalia. And, and if we picked up, let, let's pick up at, um, at chapter 24, verse 1. Uh, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. <clears throat> And verse 2, And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. All the days of Jehoiada the priest. So this is a great example of, of an older man who mentors and disciples a younger man to be a solid leader, a good king. He's a good man. Note the catch. All the days of Jehoiada. Not all the days of Joash. <laughs> and, and you know, uh, Joash leads some reforms along the way. He rebuilds the temple. He sticks with it. He does what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And then something happens. His mentor died. Over in verse 15, uh, Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. And, and he was such an honored man at the time. He's buried in the city of David among the kings because of all the good he'd done in Israel. And then verse 17, Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. 
Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the ashram and the idols. Now, why would he do this? This is like his old drinking buddies, his old royal drinking buddies from when he was a young kid. Come on back. Now that Jehoiada's out of the way, they come back, these royal princes, and say, ah, let's blow off all this. Let's go back to the way it was. Let's go back to idolatry. And, and, and he does it. He's swayed by these guys. And what happens after that is, of course, predictable. God sends judgment, sends a foreign enemy to, to conquer them, and Joash is assassinated and lives unhappily ever after. Horrible ending to the guy, huh? Well, he's not the only one. Let's look at his son. Amaziah rules from 800 to 783. I'm in chapter 25. Amaziah was 25 when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Verse 2, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. Hmm, well, that's interesting. All right, verse 5, then, it says he builds up an army because he's, uh, you know, they've got to face the Edomites, the descendants of, um, of Esau, right? He's, gonna, he's going to war against these guys. He raises an army of 300,000 troops in Judah, but he says this is enough. So he goes to Israel and hires 100,000 mercenaries, essentially. Hessians <laughs> to the British, right, in the in the revolution to help him out and he's about to go to war with these 400,000 and a prophet comes to him and says stop you're not going to do this God is not with the Israelites you send them home you can rely on me you can trust in me no matter how big you are to win this battle and you know what it's funny Amaziah doesn't make the same mistake that Asa does he sends them home and they're mad and kind of raid a little bit on their way home but he sends them home he goes into battle just with the with the Judeans and they win they win a great battle and you think, wow, things are going well. It has success. No, no, Amaziah doesn't make the mistake Asa makes. He makes a greater mistake, an even bigger mistake than his forefather makes. Let's look at it. Down in verse 14. After striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods, these are the Edomites, the men of Seir, and set them up as his gods and worshipped them, making offerings to them. Now, why in the world would you bring back the foreign gods of a defeated enemy, put them in your temple, and worship them? Isn't that just the most bizarre thing you've ever heard of? <laughs> and now, now, to us, that's just, in our culture, in our day, we just can't imagine doing that. Why would you do this? And then it goes on, it says, and of course, the Lord's angry with Amaziah, sent a prophet to him. Uh, why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? And as he's speaking... Basically, Amaziah says, buddy, you better stop now because I'm going to kill you if you don't. So he does. And what happens after that is predictable. Amaziah then, another army, I think it's Israel's army come in, comes in, um, conquer, defeats them in battle, and Amaziah is assassinated. Now, <laughs> you think, what is wrong with you guys? What happened? Why would you even do this? And it took me a while to even find a plausible reason because this is so bizarre to me. Why would you do this? And then finally I found a pretty good explanation. It was a common practice back in that day to haul off or to carry home with you the vanquished enemies' deities and idols and bring them home. You think, okay, well, it's sort of, sort of to say you, you defeated them and so you have the right to you know, take them as well. No, that's not it exactly. It was a Near East... A cultural practice and a belief that if an enemy lost in battle it's because his gods abandoned them and switched over to the other side and helped you win <laughs> really so that's what you believed huh and therefore uh, and supported the victors so 
what Amaziah must be thinking here and is probably thinking is that these foreign gods decided to support him instead of the Edomites. And so they switched sides and that's why he won. So he's bringing them back to, he's sort of treating them as honored benefactors. Well, that's the more the merrier, right? I've got God, I've got these idols, let's put them all in me and this will make me even more glorious than I am. I can collect all the strength and... Like, what are you thinking? How did you, you know, again, culture over scripture. <laughs> something, something else, someone else over relying on God alone. Why would you do this? Well, one more guy, Uzziah. Uzziah reigns from 783 to 742. He is a very good king, a great man in so many different ways. I mean, Second Chronicles 26. He did all that was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set himself to seek God, which is a synonym for reliance. He relied on God. And as a result, he was very blessed, very prosperous in all his endeavors. And he, win he wins great battles against the Philistines. He builds up towns. He builds farms, cisterns, towers, you know, these advanced defensive uh, uh, military uh, weapons and, and engines and, and maybe even something akin to a trebuchet that he's using to protect, protect his people. And so the country is prospering and doing very, very well. And let me pick up in, in verse 15. Uh, I'm going to pick up right in the middle of that verse. And it says, And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped. And here's the catch. Till he was strong. <laughs> verse 16, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now what in the world would possess King Uzziah, who's done so much good for such a long time, in so many different ways, to suddenly decide, well, you know what? <laughs> I should be able to do whatever the priest does too. I think I'll go in and offer the incense, the altar of incense. And, and why would you do that? Well, immediately 80, 80 of the priests opposed him and say, you can't do this. That's not what the law of God demands. It demands only that we can make this offering. I don't care who you are, how successful you are. You can't. And so they all stand in front of you. And he gets angry with them. He does like Asa, and he doesn't respond and repent. He gets angry with them, and he's going to do it anyway. And then what happens? As soon as he raises up the censer, he gets leprosy. God strikes him with leprosy. And now he's willing to get out. <laughs> and they rush him out. And not only are you not going to be the priest, King Uzziah, you're not even going to get to be king anymore because we're going to have to keep you in isolation for the rest of your life and your son's going to have to reign in your place. You can't even fulfill his responsibilities as king after that. And I've got to keep asking myself, why are you guys doing this? You know, Uzziah was not a weak king. He, didn't sw he wasn't swayed by his buddies. <laughs> he wasn't given to ungodly alliances with other, other pagan uh, countries. But he was headstrong, very headstrong, very confident. He could do no wrong and he could do it all. He's unaccountable to anybody, even God. Really? <laughs> well, I, it, it's a puzzling thing to me to see the lives of these men and how they turned out because these are the good guys. These are the kings of Judah. These are the heirs of David. These are the ancestors of Jesus. The promises all flow through these men. What is happening to them? Why is this happening? They start well, but a good start does not ensure a good finish. They knew God. They knew His Word. They had every advantage to lead well. 
And at first they did rely on God and saw great success. But as they became more experienced leaders, Asa relies on a pagan alliance. Joash relies on his old royal drinking buddies. <laughs> uh, Amaziah relies on the pagan idols uh, of a conquered people. And Uzziah simply relies on himself. Instead of relying solely on God and obeying his word. Now there are many, many lessons we can learn from these stories, aren't there? There's a lot. I thought, I would be here for days if we start getting into all this stuff. But let, you know, I want to point out at least one really important lesson. Leaders have a tendency over time to think they're sovereign. And they can do whatever they like because they rule. But the fact is, leaders, spiritual leaders, are always only servants. Servant leaders, not sovereign leaders. There is only one sovereign king, and it's Jesus, right? There's only one sovereign. Everyone else, from the king on down, is subject to that sovereign as his servants, as their servant leaders. And, you know, we like to call the... Uh, <clears throat> We like to call the original sin as when Adam sinned, and that's true, but there was a sin, you know, before that, right? Which I think is sort of the, the, really the original sin. And that's when Satan, who was at one time God's right-hand man, right? It's when he fell and he decided, you know what, I think I'll be God. I'm be, I be, he, he becomes intoxicated by his own beauty, his own glory, his own strength, and he decides he will be God. And Ezekiel 28 talks about how God says, nope, that's not what's going to happen, and casts him down. Uh, Isaiah 14 also arguably speaks to the same issue with Satan. So the original satanic error is the kind of thing that spiritual leaders still fall into today. Think I'll be God. Think I'll be the sovereign. Think I can do whatever I want. Well, see, that's why we believe in a plurality of elders in this church, in fact, because no one man, not even the senior pastor, not even the chairman of the elder board has absolute authority and rule. We rule as a body. There is only one king, Jesus. Everyone else is a servant, right? And we're all of equal value before God. Well, I don't want to end on a downer note, so let's at least let's move forward a few hundred years and talk about two guys that got it right in our final few minutes here. Over in 2 Timothy, and I'm going to go over to 2 Timothy 3, and I'm going to go through this. Uh, I'll be brief. In 2 Timothy 3, we have Paul writing the last letter he probably ever wrote to his right-hand man, his most faithful guy, uh, a, a pre-seasoned leader at this point. Timothy had served with Paul, you know, for many years. Timothy had been the senior pastor, in, F, in essence, at, uh, at Ephesus for a long time. But he's sort of at that age now of experience where... Uh, that Asa factor could kick in for him, couldn't it? And so Paul is really wanting to make sure that Timothy stays the course and continues on to lead well, to rely on God, rely on his word, and finish well and finish his ministry. And so in chapter 3, he's describing uh, the coming apostasy uh, in the last days and that many will turn away and wander off from the Lord for a variety of reasons. And... Paul doesn't want that to happen to Timothy. He doesn't want him to bail out. He doesn't want him to fall out of the race. He wants him to finish well and fulfill his ministry. And so he says in chapter 3, verse, after summarizing the apostasy and all the different problems that are coming, 
Verse 14, he says, but as for you, <laughs> I love it, it gets to this, but as for you, Timothy, uh, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And he reminds him that all Scripture is God-breathed, all of it is breathed out by God, and all of it is profitable. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Then he goes on in, in chapter 4, verse 2, to say, preach the word. I want you to preach the word, the truth. Why? Verse 3, let's pick up on that. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. That's an interesting term, sound teaching. They won't endure, they won't put up with sound teaching or sound doctrine or healthy teaching, healthy doctrine. Instead, what will they do? But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions or desires or lusts and will turn away from listening to the truth. They'll turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. Verse 5 again. But as for you, <laughs> I want you to stick with the truth. Don't wander off into myths, Timothy. Now, I want to do a brief sidebar here. <clears throat> well, let me just say that it's funny. Paul, Paul references truth no less than six times in First and Second Timothy. Three times in each book talks about the truth, the truth, the truth. Stick with the truth. What is the truth? Is the truth a, an absolute thing? Is it relative? What is it? Well, see, that's something actually we struggle with a little bit in our generation, right? Because of all the isms out there and the things going on. In fact, let me, briefly, let me just uh, refer to one, because this has had a big impact on our current culture. Um, and I'll call it the, uh, well, I didn't call it this. It's, it is called the Hegelian dialectic. Is that a new term for you? Not an expert. I know enough to be dangerous about this. Um, but it's a triad structure uh, comprising three elements that's attributed to uh, George W.F. Hegel, a 19th century German philosopher, that is the theory of evolution of knowledge and culture resulting in higher levels of truth. Oh, really? Truth evolves. <laughs> because in each generation, and, and let me say that uh, truth is relative because each generation determines for itself what is truth. The prevailing culture is called uh, the thesis of a generation, and it's a blend of values, priorities, and ideologies of the day, right? So in every generation, there is a thesis. Here's what we're about. Call it the spirit of the age. That's another term for it. Or in German, it would be the Geist. You heard that term? Uh, from which we get our English word, the gist. Give me the gist of it, right? So every generation has a thesis, but there also exists or arises an antithesis, that is the opposing view, the contrary view. Thesis, antithesis, over time they are held in conflict, they are compromised to reach a synthesis. And then that synthesis, which is a compromise of the thesis and the antithesis, and the synthesis then becomes the thesis of the next generation. And so truth evolves and we reach higher and higher levels of truth. There's a lot of people that believe that this happens. And in fact, uh, a pretty famous guy that you, whose name you will know, another philosopher after Hegel, put this into practice. And he decided that the thesis of his day was monarchy, king's rule. The antithesis was democracy, 
like you see in America. And the synthesis was, I'll give you a hint, his name was Karl Marx. Communism, the synthesis, which became then the thesis of the next generation. Now, you'll see this kind of thing happen. Uh, in fact, if we looked at uh, <clears throat> some of our American social changes through the years, and especially the last, just the last 40 years in areas of uh, sexual freedom, abortion, women's roles, marriage, homosexuality, you'll see that things have socially progressed, so to speak, over time. And something we could argue is akin to this Hegelian dialectic. But here's the myth about it. It doesn't lead to higher levels of truth. <laughs> it just leads to more, more error, more change, you know, change in culture and beliefs and norms. But that's not truth. See, truth is absolute. Culture is always relative and changing because it derives from man. And pride is deceitful. But Scripture is always constant. It's always absolute. It's always bedrock. Timothy, stick with the truth, the revealed Word of God, the divine expression from God in His Word as expressed in the Scriptures. And see, we believe this at this church. And this is what we want to be about. No matter what happens. So Paul, verse 5, be sober-minded, be level-headed, be well-rounded, stick with the truth and fulfill your ministry. Now, let me close by saying this. Paul wasn't just telling Timothy to stick it out. He practiced what he preached. Because right after that, uh, in verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And there's laid up for me a crown. And there's a crown for everyone whose love is appearing, who finishes well like this. So I find great encouragement in Paul challenging Timothy to stick it out, to stay the course, to finish well, to fulfill his ministry. Because I need to hear that. <laughs> I need to hear that message. And I'm at that age where I don't want to succumb to this sort of this ace of factor issue. But there are a lot of influences on leaders and a lot of things happen, right? So my charge to my, you know, I want to challenge myself, I want to challenge you. Continue to rely on the Lord. Continue to trust wholeheartedly in God and His Word. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these lessons and that you have preserved these for us and that we can still learn from them today. Although cultures change and many of the occurrences and things that happen seem rather bizarre to us in, in our day, really the underlying principles are absolutely the same. And so, Lord, may we always continue to rely solely on you, to be wholehearted in following you, and to rely on your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.